You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a spiritual journey where each week we explore differing faiths by asking questions and engaging in a discussion with differing faith leaders. That way we can form a mosaic of answers to life's deeper questions, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is there life after death? These and similar questions we'll be exploring over the coming weeks. And we're very honored today to be joined by Sensei Joshin Burns, Dharma teacher, president, and vice abbot at the Upaya Zen Center. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, me, I'm very happy to have you here, particularly because I don't know much about Zen Buddhism. So I think the first obvious question is, what is Zen Buddhism? Well, actually, let's start with not knowing, because um, there's an old Zen story of a monk on pilgrimage who's walking through the woods, and um, he comes across a senior monk, and the senior monk says to him, where are you going? And the young monk says, I don't know. And the senior monk says, not knowing is most intimate. In some ways, that's kind of at the heart of Zen, to be honest. It's like um, the practice of Zen is about freeing ourselves from the constraints of mind that keep us from being intimate with all things. Like when we believe something very strongly, a dogma or a truth or an opinion that we've had that's now become a really fixed view, we can um, close our uh, field of vision. You know, we can kind of narrow our view around the thing we think the world is. And Zen is a set of practices that open up that view. So we see the world, maybe we're trying, we endeavor to see the world more fully, more completely, uh, and therefore to be able to become more intimate with it, to come into relationship with it. And in coming into relationship with it, they can then respond out of love, out of connection in the world. How far does that not knowing go? By which, for example, in front of me is a pen. And if you said to me, what is that? I'd say, that's a pen. Um, as opposed to, I don't know. What, mm-hmm. what does that mean then? How, how far do we go in terms of not knowing and being able to state things about the world around us? Yeah, of course, we have to get through our daily lives. We have to cross the street, tie our shoes, have jobs, be in relationships. We have to be able to know what to get at the store, all those things. And those are all part of the everyday working world. Within all those everyday activities is a kind of... Um, mystery maybe or a wonder, there's a kind of infinite knowability. So maybe more than not knowing, it's like, can we be open to the fact that there's more here than meets the eye? So that pen, for example, has a life that precedes its form as a pen and a life that will uh, come after it, um, after its life as a pen. You know, where did it come from and who made it? And how did all the elements that came together to make that pen a pen today, how did those elements come together and where do they come from? And what's the labor that went into that and who was the person that made the ink? And what does that person do and what is their life like? And someday that pen will disintegrate into the ground and become soil maybe, maybe (laughs) because it's plastic thousands Mm -hmm. of years from now. But still, it will transform and become something else and This is how we live our lives, recognizing we all come from somewhere and something that we we don't have this independent existence, but that we're the result of everything. 
and that we live our lives in a way that we recognize will have an effect into the future. So how do we, I, I would love to live like this. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to live in a way whereby everything I see, I can really stop and contemplate and really think about its, its origins and its ending, whatever that ending is. But I fear I wouldn't move. Mm -hmm. You know, I would get out of bed and I would think, ah, now what is my bed? And what is my floor? And my floor is wood. And, and, and how do you, if you are contemplating everything from beginning to end, how do you avoid paralysis? Well, you know, at some level, stillness and silence is a part of the practice because in that practice, we um, quiet the mind enough to see the stories, the habits of mind that in fact limit us from that perspective, from that view, and we try to liberate them. You know, we all have these con conditioned minds and our conditioning does um, keep us from seeing things fully. So, so contemplative practice, silent practice is really key. But if it ends with sitting on the cushion just in paralysis, then we've kind of missed – we're not actually doing the practice then. Mm. The practice naturally um, uh, opens us up to – I'm going to use this word again – intimacy, into relationship, into recognizing that we're not alone in this world and that we share our well-being. And that's the heart of the contemplative practice. It's actually not separate at all. but opening up ways of mind that allow us to connect much more deeply with all things than we have than we thought we were and right. in recognizing that then healing loving caring action emerges naturally out of contemplative practice when you say we share our well-being with whom with well in in buddhist <coughs> cosmology we would say with all things with everything is we're actually not separate from anything that the whatever the Big Bang was, whatever cosmic dust um, evolved moment by moment, year by year, millennium by millennium, eon by eon, is alive and here right now. And we are it. And it is us. And so in a, in a quite kind of physical way, we are not separate. And our actions as as these beings that move and act in the world, that take a breath, that breathe in the air from trees and release a breath that then feeds those trees, we're in a constant state of exchange, right, mm -hmm. with all things. And so that's a perspective that's helpful to have because once you begin to see the world in that way, then we recognize we are really quite dependent on one another, right. that your breathing and my breathing exist kind of in, in partnership and, and we depend. And so then if we recognize that, we kind of begin to have a view of the whole cosmos as one body, right? Mm -hmm. One interconnected system. There's the brain neighborhood and the heart neighborhood and the kidneys neighborhood. And um, there are all the neighborhoods we can imagine that make up our world. And once we recognize that as one body, then we begin to move and act together in a kind of a kind of a a coordinated um, dance or a, a oneness. Are we all dancing together? I I, <laughs> I ask because uh, from my 
physics background, the second law of thermodynamics is everything breaks down towards entropy. Mm. Everything works its way down towards nothingness and chaos, ultimately. Mm. Is that the opposite of what you're saying? I guess I'm saying that um, we're dancing and we step on each other's feet and that there's an element of, um, I mean, I mean, just observation teaches us that, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, we really, if you just observe your life, you recognize how incredibly interdependent things are. Sure. So part of it is slowing down and just looking. You know, it's a very simple practice. Just look and see. You don't need to have a lot of theory um, behind it. And in looking and seeing, you recognize the interconnection. Mm. And we recognize we are in the dance. We don't often do it very well. So things get in the way. But um, there's, there's kind of um, no other option but to keep dancing. So then sticking with this dancing metaphor, is, um, is your intention to teach everyone how to dance? Mm. Or is everyone entitled to dance their own way? And is stepping on each other's toes part of being? Yeah, well, the metaphor is going to break down pretty soon. Okay. But <laughs> I think what we're doing is helping each other hear the music. So what is it that we're dancing to? And mm. this is the Dharma, we would say in our language. It's the Dharma. It's the way things are. It's that um, graceful interdependence of all things. And it's the passing of time. The, the, the mutability, the transience of all things. That's the music. So if we recognize that, then how do we want to be with one another? How do we choose to be with one another? And so the core practice is seeing the interdependence of all things and the transience, the changeability of all things. And then that opens up the heart of compassion. You're in a process and I'm in a process and we meet here. From my tradition, biblically, um, the idea of God who creates good and evil mm. um, uh, from the book of Isaiah. Would it be fair to say in your tradition that there is no evil or is, there's nothing bad because it's all part of a long chain of being? It, from one perspective, that's true. From the absolute perspective, there is this um, place where everything is unfolding exactly as it should be unfolding in this moment, that everything is caused and conditioned. And, and that, that, that's true. There's also the relative part. We, we have a beautiful chant called the Sandokai. It's, um, uh, and, and in it, uh, we talk about the, what we say is the interpenetration of the relative world and the absolute, is that these two things are not separate. So there is the unfolding of things. And in the unfolding of things, um, there is, you know, what we might call karma, that there is causality, that there, there is some kind of thing that happens that is either beneficial or not beneficial. And so what we're doing always in our practice is trying to understand how to live beneficial lives, how um, to relieve suffering. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the heart, too, of the practice. So we recognize, oh, yeah, there are actions that cause suffering and actions that um, cause wellness or well-being or wholeness. So, again, how do we live in, an in a highly accountable way right. as beings who are trying to relieve suffering? And the accountability part is very interesting for me in terms of is it possible for somebody in your tradition to say to do anything bad and then say, well, that's how it was meant to be or this is the part of the larger chain of things that I was meant to take that from that person? 
what, where, what's, where's the accountability? Yeah, so the accountability comes in your intention. So if you deepen the intention to live in a way that relieves suffering, then um, you have to develop a perspective on what causes suffering. Mm-hmm. And, our, and we are always, really with every breath, um, trying to understand uh, the, the system of causality that we are part of. So we then take a step, right, with a deep intention under our belts, um, kind of the, that's the wind in our sails, mm-hmm. to relieve suffering. So we expand our view. We try to understand this world deeply, and we take a step, and then we see what happens. And then we learn from that step, and we see what happens, and we take another step, and we see what happens. And so our ethic, in some ways, is um, a uh, contextual ethic, you know, that we're trying to see everything in context because once it's like a big net, right? You touch the net somewhere and the whole thing vibrates. Mm-hmm. It sends an effect. Then you have to see, oh, what is that vibration? And now how do I respond? So that's the practice is always about cultivating the appropriate response to every situation. When we return from our break, I'd love to continue, particularly looking, you mentioned karma, and I want to try to explore what that is uh, for you. And, and uh, so we, you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR uh, with Rabbi Neil Amsrich. My guest is Sensei Joshin from the Upaya Zen Center. We're back with Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest is Sensei Joshin from the Upaya Zen Center. You were talking about the the idea of uh, whenever you touch the net of life, I guess, um, the um, the causality. And you mentioned karma before, the, the consequences of the actions. Does that mean that every time you do something bad, something else bad happens? Because very often you see... You know, um, just to be trite, you know, karma videos online. Yeah. Somebody does something and then immediately something comes back to him and say, that's right. karma. And I'm, I'm sensing that's not really karma. No, it's not. And, you know, like, like so many religious traditions, we come out of an ancient world, mm-hmm. right, where metaphors and all played a certain role in helping people understand things. And now in our contemporary world, we have, you know, new tools and new metaphors and all that. So I, I think, you know, fundamentally what karma is, is the recognition that every action you take has a consequence somewhere in the system. Like I said already, you know, you take a breath. That breath means something. So, again, it comes back to like living this very life, this everyday ordinary life. How does what you do matter? Recognizing that, in fact, everything you do does matter. So that's the accountability part. There's something highly accountable in karma. Once you recognize that you're part of this interconnected, vibrating web, then you recognize your actions make a difference. So who are you accountable to? or, to, or how, how is a person held accountable? You're accountable to the well-being of all things. Yeah. And if somebody ignores that, what, are they not accountable anymore? What I mean is within the system, that sounds totally appropriate because if I, if I harm you, then I'm not just harming you. I'm harming the relationship between us and, and everyone around us and, and yeah. much more. But if I were the kind of person who just didn't care and harmed right. you and walked out, does that mean – can I just ignore karma? Am I not accountable for anything or any, any to anyone? Yes. I mean there are – 
you know, many um, potential and necessary responses to that. One is if you're harming um, the world, we need to protect the world, you know, from you in, in a sense. And so we don't want you to cause harm. We don't want you to take on the karmic burden of causing harm, actually. Um, you know, we, we and we recognize that when you harm people, you yourself are suffering. Is uh, even if your mind is so troubled that you don't see it as suffering, it's recognized as suffering. So this is the manifestation of your suffering, and our job is to help you relieve your suffering. And there might be many skillful means to help you relieve your suffering. Some might be that you have to be kept safe mm -hmm. in some way. Um, some might be that we need to offer you resources that you might not otherwise have had. So again, uh, can you operate out of a place of um, clear, incisive wisdom, but not just cold wisdom, but compassionate wisdom? Right. The, this concept of no harm is obviously very important. And, and I read online the ethics code for the Upaya Zen Center, which, which says, I vow to do no harm. I vow to do good. I vow to save the many beings. Is it possible to do no harm? I mean, a vow is a very strong thing. In Judaism, a neder, a vow, is something you're really held by mm -hmm. to the point that some people will even say, I'll see you at five o'clock, bli neder, which means I'm not taking a vow on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just saying I'm expressing my intention. Mm -hmm. So I vow to do no harm. Is that even possible to do no harm at all? You know, when I, when I drive here, for example, you know, I, 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 I'm an environmentalist, but I drive here in, in a car and I kill bugs on the way. So I'm definitely doing harm, aren't I? So, so ha again, this goes back to if I were living um, uh, stationary, expressing awe and the wonder of the world, I, I couldn't do harm per se because I'm not going out and harming anyone. But at the same time, in, in everyday life, isn't contemporary life now a life whereby we, by necessity, will do harm? Yeah. So we say in Zen, there is always the slender sadness. And um, so that's a poetic way and a very um, thrifty way of saying what you're saying. Uh, that the slender sadness is, in fact, um, life uh, and death are in a constant uh, mutual relationship. That our life depends in many ways on this slender sadness that we will do harm to sustain our life. And you walk on the sidewalk and you'll kill the ants and you'll eat food, um, you know, that ends life. Mm. And so we recognize this is part of the, the kind of the beauty and the, the poignancy of the human experience, the human condition. And so can we use that slender sadness to open our heart further, to um, step up our game? Mm. around uh, being accountable in this world, to think about how we keep the slender sadness really slender. And so what is that like, you know, for us mm. to practice in a way where we're minimizing harm, recognizing that we are never very far away from doing anything that causes suffering? This is fascinating to me because when we started talking when you were talking about uh, our place in the world, there seemed to be that sense of joy of 
being part of a greater being. And yet now you're talking about that slender sadness. How do you hold that joy of creation and that sadness together in a daily practice? Can we know joy without sadness? Do we know sadness without its relationship to joy? Within light, there's darkness. Within darkness, there's light. And so we live in a complex um, uh, cosmos, right, where all this exists within it itself. And I don't want to get too abstract about that, but I think it's kind of the truth of our lives, that there's something kind of contradictory and paradoxical always going on, that we know heartbreak because we've been in love, that we know grief because we've known real joy, that we know pain because we know ecstasy. And so can we live a life that holds all of those parts of life, those aspects of life kind of equally? This is what we call equanimity Mm -hmm. in the practice. Can we see it all as equally valuable to us? Everything has the opportunity to teach us. I think for me there's a difference though between knowing these two things and experiencing them at the same time. Mm-hmm. I can know joy because I know sadness or vice versa. But but it seems like you're holding these two together simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think that's different to saying, well, I know joy because I know sadness. Is it possible to experience that joy and that sadness simultaneously? Yeah. So it's great. And, you know, we we can very easily get into kind of a big philosophical conversation and maybe even a psychological okay. conversation. <laughs> um, so um, – when you're sad, be sad. Mm. Uh, when it's time to meditate, meditate. When it's time to wash the toilet, wash the toilet. This is our way. Uh, we respond to each moment as it arises. And we're trying to have a kind of freedom or liberative way of walking through life where we can actually respond without a lot of reactivity to mm. anything that's coming up. Um, now, at the same time, it raises a question. So, yeah, we say that. Well, what is a moment what is time? What is this moment? It's a very elusive concept. And maybe there's a way to see this moment as um, holding all previous moments and all future moments within it. Mm-hmm. So there is this moment, and there's this moment, and there's this moment. And while they're each distinct from one another, they're also not. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from a kind of philosophical perspective, it, it – it, um, you know, how, how? what's your perspective on time? And how do you fit into the passing of an unfolding of time? Which I think are, are very important questions for today when you think about um, the real risks to our planet, for example. When you think about that today you might invest a dollar in your uh, retirement account, but seven years from now that dollar will be chopping the tops off mountains in Appalachia and digging coal out of them. You know, how, how do we live in a way that we recognize that this moment contains the future in it and the past in it? It's interesting that you mention coal mining because um, guests that we've had previously have had differing opinions on the political role of their thought. Um, so, for example, when you're saying I, I'll do no harm, um, if I have to dig coal, let's say, uh, and obviously as an environmentalist, I much prefer, especially in New Mexico, you know, solar um, uh, uh, energy sources. Nonetheless, 
there are jobs involved. There are um, there are ways of supporting communities involved. So these things become very complicated when we say I do no harm. Even when it comes to life choices like spending money, which in particular becomes very difficult. Um, again, it comes back to that almost impossibility of not doing harm, doesn't yes, it? Yes, of course. And, you know, again, we've recognized we're just in this constant, you know, relationship with one another. And in some ways, that's the beauty of that teaching, right, is if you can really embody that down to the marrow of your bones, that what I do matters in this world. I mean, really, right. then there's no passivity. Then every moment, the kind of responsibility we carry is to then be awake to that. Right. This is maybe enlightenment in our modern world, is to recognize that what we do really matters. So then can one get involved in politics as a Zen Buddhist? Should one get involved in politics? In, and I don't mean party politics, but, but much more about shaping the moral, civic uh, environment around us. It, are you called to that? Yeah, I think we are called to recognize that we are already, whether we are, um, whether we realize it or recognize it or not, we are already involved in political systems. Um, that's part of perspective taking is to recognize that reality. You know, um, again, this is kind of like everyday Zen. It's like look at your life, and once you look, you'll see that you are already involved, whether you choose to vote or don't choose to vote. Um, that all your actions kind of are part of a larger system of which politics uh, are uh, important and very um, influential aspect. So, yeah, you know, we, our practice is to fully engage wherever we see the opportunity to engage. So if that means engaging in politics and policy and advocacy because we think doing so will reduce harm um, or will relieve suffering, then we do that. So as, as we wrap up, would it be fair to say – I was going to ask how do you determine right from wrong, but is the, is the core that, that, um, that essence of doing no harm? Whatever I will do, I will try to do as little harm as possible. Um, is that the core driving force to determine right and wrong essentially? Yeah. Um, what I would say is um, our core um, – uh, hope or endeavor or practice is to relieve suffering and liberate all beings. So this notion of liberation is mm -hmm. a really important one. And so what does it mean to uh, be part of co-creating a world with all other beings where people are really free? Uh, what, and what would that freedom look like? And so I think that's kind of the driving force. Mm. It's, this has been really quite extraordinary for me to, to learn about your tradition. There's so much more that mm. I would love to explore. And I do hope that you'll be able to uh, join us uh, another time uh, yeah. to explore this further and to explore this concept of, of, of joy and the slender sadness. So explore the concept of, of doing no harm and, um, and holding um, our place in the world as... as um, as people who are part of a larger creation, there's, um, I'd love to further discuss our, our similarities and differences in our, our traditions. Yeah, I would love that too. And I think it's the work of our generation to really 
uh, find ways to talk with one another across our um, philosophical perspectives. And every time I've talked with you, I've found it to be really rich. So thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you for coming. So uh, you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My thanks again to Sensei Joshin Burns, the President and Vice Abbot at Upaya Zen Center. Until next time, keep searching.